I bring you greetings from Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, and I want to thank you for providing gainful employment for one of our finest alums. <laughs> thank you for keeping him off the street. <clears throat> And I'm also grateful to be with you today uh, to talk about something that's been on my mind and heart these last years. And that is what to do with biblical texts that raise my blood pressure, like the one I'm just about to read. How do we wrestle with such texts with integrity, without ignoring them, dismissing them, whitewashing them, or acquiescing to them? That's what we talked about during the last hour, during the church school hour, and I hope you'll bear with me as I wrestle a bit more in your presence during this hour, trusting that we will hear a word from God for us today. Our second scripture reading is from the fifth chapter of Ephesians, starting with the 21st verse. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own body but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During my teenage years, I began to find myself tremendously insulted by what I thought at the time was Paul's view of women. Appalled that a number of his statements on this subject had ever found their way into my Bible. Now, at the time, I thought I had a solution to this problem. It was simply to take my magic marker and clearly X these portions out of my Bible, and then to record obscene remarks about the Apostle Paul in the margins for future reference. But even that did not suffice when I came to Ephesians 5. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. When I came to Ephesians 5, I got out the scissors. These were words that had to be forcibly removed, excised, banished from my personal canon of scripture. Well, 40 plus years later, I find myself at a very different place, 
I by no means find myself endeared to Ephesians 5, but theological education has mellowed me considerably, and I no longer perform radical surgery on the canon. For one thing, I find myself reconciled to the Apostle Paul, who not only turns out not to have penned this text, but who has also turned out to be more of an advocate for the freedom and equality of all people in Christ than I could have ever imagined. What's more, I've come to the point where I can admit that even Ephesians 5 deserves a measure of my respect. I'm now aware of the fact that its faithful author, writing toward the end of the first century, sought to bring Paul's legacy to bear in difficult new situations that Paul himself could not have foreseen and did not face. In particular, when was Christ returning anyway? Paul had, in, had anticipated his imminent arrival, had felt that the structures of the world were passing away. But there they were, Christian husbands, wives, children, slaves, still hanging around at the end of the first century, having to cope with the reality of Christ's delay. It appeared they were going to be around a lot longer than they had anticipated. And how were they to live as Christians in a world that was not quickly passing away? How was faith to affect the ongoing structures of their lives? It's surely one of the reasons that we find household codes in Ephesians 5 and 6 and other later New Testament epistles. Tables of duties for husbands, wives, children, and slaves, which begin to address this crisis by suggesting very concretely how Christians are to be faithful to the gospel in the midst of ongoing social responsibilities. And by directing Christians to live within the structures of the world and there to express love and obedience. I can appreciate this effort, the effort to discern how Christian faith shapes our lives at its most intimate and critical points, as well as its emphasis on using our relationship with the Lord as the means of discerning how we are to treat others. So Ephesians 5 now stands undefiled in my new RSV, and I can now acknowledge genuine efforts on the author's part to reframe marriage in the context of Christ's lordship. I appreciate, for example, the fact that Christian husbands, at least, are exhorted three times to love rather than to dominate their wives. Love her, love her, love her. And they were to make no mistake about it, what that means. Love is not the feeling you feel when you feel you're going to feel a feeling you've never felt before. Love, for the author of Ephesians, is defined by Jesus Christ. So husbands are specifically directed to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which is to say the husband must spare nothing, not even his own life if need be, in care and concern for his wife. Moreover, in a patriarchal society in which a wife was required by law to be subject to her husband, I can appreciate that the author admonishes Christian husbands not to stand on their secular prerogatives, but to join their wives in mutual submission one to the other out of reverence for Christ. 
remarkable words, even startling words in the first century world. And to be sure, no more elevated, more positive description of marriage is found in all of scripture, Christian literature than at the end of Ephesians 5, when our author, grasping at metaphors, suggests that the mystery at the heart of a marriage is a profound one, one that mirrors the very mystery of the love between Christ and the church. Now, that is actually an improvement over the Apostle Paul's own take on marriage articulated in 1 Corinthians 7, better to marry than to burn, hardly a ringing endorsement. Ephesians, by contrast, provides a joyful affirmation of marriage, indeed a qualitatively new perception of it as a union that participates in and reflects the very reality of grace. Nevertheless, let me hasten to assure you, Ephesians was not read at my wedding. Yes, it does now command a measure of my respect, but not my affection. How could it when it continues to provide countless Christians around this world with theological legitimation for a first century patriarchal pattern of wifely subordination? It cannot, after all, be said that the relationship between Christ and the church which provides the parallel to marriage, is a relationship between equals. And as the church is subordinate to Christ, so is the wife called to be subordinate to her husband, quote, in everything. Neither can it be said that the text addresses the husband and wife as equals. For while Christian husbands are addressed in terms of love, Christian wives are addressed in terms of respect and submission. It's an odd notion, I think, that love is a guy thing and submission a woman thing. Out of sync with Jesus' own teaching. For when he washed the feet of his disciples on the night before his death, did he not demonstrate that love and subordination go hand in hand? And didn't he tell his disciples in no uncertain terms that they were not to model their relationships of authority on those of the world at large, on rulers of the world who lord it over others. It is not to be so among you, he said, for whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. I, he said, am among you as one who serves. So I have a suspicion that Jesus would not be altogether pleased with Ephesians' construal of his lordship in hierarchical terms. I have a suspicion he would have been happier with an earlier emphasis in Ephesians 2, which got it right. The affirmation that in Christ, all the dividing walls of hostility have come down. Now, the author, to be sure, endeavors to reframe marriage within the context of Christian uh, faith. But the first century cultural pattern remains reflected in this text, combined now with the theology of Christ and the church, and thus theologically legitimated. As a result, Ephesians 5 has served through the ages to reinforce cultural norms in ways I suspect its author never would have intended. Ephesians 5, moreover, 
has proved to be a text which is hazardous to women's health. Those who minister among the battered will tell you, Ephesians 5 is a very difficult text for abused women who are struggling to find self-respect and some control over their lives. Now, there's no question that when the author advised Christian women to be subject to their husbands, he was by no means exhorting subjection to physical violence. However, this text has been widely interpreted in ways that have made many Christian women more susceptible to violence and in ways that have heightened the likelihood that battered women will stay in abusive relationships long after they should. So, shouldn't we get out the scissors? Some would say we do need to do radical surgery on the canon and that we need to start right here. But I'm not inclined anymore to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Admittedly, it has taken me decades to be able to say this. But I would now maintain that Ephesians 5 has a place in the canon and, in fact, a word for us today. Whether we are single or married, whether we are divorced or widowed, whether we are straight or gay. For wherever we live and work, whatever our circumstances might be, Ephesians 5 reminds us that Christian faith does impact the structures of our lives. Many of us, for example, have families, whether we live under the same roof with them or not. And sometimes we share the sentiment of the cynic who said, God gives us our relatives. Thank God we can choose our friends. For we all know life in families is not always easy. For there are no perfect parents, no perfect partners, no perfect children, no perfect in-laws. Though I must say I did finally find the perfect card to send my mother this past Mother's Day. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was a real jerk and you didn't knocketh my block off. <laughs> Who would deny it? Life together in families stretches us, pulls us, strains us, and maybe one of the best chances God gives us to grow out of ourselves and into something more like what we were meant to be. And so, like the first generation of Christians, we continue to try to discern the ways in which Christian faith shapes and transforms our lives at these most intimate and critical points. How within our relationships with our partners, our parents, our children, our siblings, we can best love one another, forgive one another, and live in service to one another after the manner of Christ. For all of you, that discernment also includes life together in a church family here at Warrington Presbyterian Church. And sometimes church families, like all families, relate in very human, dysfunctional ways. In fact, sometimes as we experience the reality of life in Christian congregations, we empathize with the little girl who was asked by her Sunday school teacher if she wanted to go to heaven and said, not if all these people are going to be there. <laughs> sometimes we realize the commandment to love one another to love those within the Christian community 
is perhaps one of the most difficult things Jesus could have asked us to do. For there are many circumstances in which it is easier to love one's enemies than it is to love those with whom we live, work, and worship day after day. But are there not also occasions when despite ourselves we are reminded of the power of Jesus Christ to transform our life together in Christian community, enabling us to be gracious to one another, to forgive one another, to really listen to each other and to disagree in love and to embrace our differences, our diversity as a gift. So for all of these reasons then, I think I would urge you not to run for your scissors and I put away my own. Ephesians 5, to be sure, has had an unfortunate life and history of its own, and I still don't like it. But I trust that we can continue to be instructed by the underlying concerns and commitments it reveals. For as we come before this text, it is the new community we see envisioned here, however imperfectly, engaged in acts of discernment that we continue in our time and place, however imperfectly. We see faith being enacted in love and love seeking to affect its transforming power in the midst of this age. We see genuine, if halting, efforts to reform the structures of life together in light of Christ's all-inclusive love, efforts in which we too persevere as a church reformed, always reforming, though sometimes haltingly as well, as we continue on our way. This text reminds us that the grace of God in Jesus Christ continues to empower us to transform the structures in which we find ourselves and to discern the ways in which we can serve one another in our time and place. Indeed, wrestling with it and against it is part of God's own work in us forming in us the mind of Jesus Christ. And for that mercy we may rejoice, knowing that neither death nor life, nor institutions nor structures, certainly not our relationships or your life together in this place, can escape the transforming power and riches of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.